Right.
And as the, as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. The people of Israel walked on, on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. We thank you, our Father God, that you have made yourself known, that you have revealed yourself as the I Am. And we pray, Father, as we reflect on this event this evening, that, Father, you would continue to show us more about yourself. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I thought we'd start this week with a bit of a recap, looking at the objects. So uh, how are we doing? We ready for these? Um, Anyone remember what happened week one? Chains, which was about slavery. Slavery, Yeah, so the people were in slavery. Uh, Then we had the bush, which I'm not going to go near. There we go. Do it. And that was, oh, it got me again. And that was about uh, God making himself known. The bush that wasn't, uh, looked like it was on fire, but didn't kind of burn up. Then, anyone remember? Staff, yes, very good. We had the staff. Yes, it is a staff. Um, there we are. Uh, and that was about the plagues, wasn't it? God showing his power over creation and his enemies. And then last week we had uh, the sheep, the, the lamb, uh, which symbolized the Passover lamb. So the people who had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts uh, were saved from God's judgment uh, when it hit the land. Now you might think that's kind of pretty much the whole exodus done and dusted. Uh, after this point, the people leave. Uh, you might think it's a bit like that um, moment in a movie, you know, um, where uh, people disappear into the sunset. Um, you know, at the end of a movie, when it's all kind of finished, people walk into the sunset. Uh, any prizes? Uh, there will be prizes for this. Uh, anyone guess what that film is? I'd be very impressed. Sorry? Wow. How do you know that? That is impressive. I must get you a prize. Um, do you want a bush? By the way? Uh, <laughs> yes, so that's Indiana Jones. That's not really um, relevant to the talk, but you get the point that you expect that this is the kind of sunset moment where the story is over. But then we see something very strange happen, because in chapter 14, verse 1, God gives a very questionable uh, instruction to his people. Have a look at 14, verse 1, see if you can spot it. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp. Now, if um, this story was all about getting people out of slavery, rescued from the Egyptians, why is God now asking them to turn back? In fact, he not only tells them to turn back, but he tells them to encamp in front of the sea. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But the people are kind of to stop where they are. Why would he do that? Well, the answer comes in chapter 14, verse 4. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host." 
and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Now, do we get the theme? It's coming out again, isn't it? Knowing that he is the Lord. So God tells them to turn back. He does what we're about to see, all with this purpose of showing his people that he really is the Lord. He really is the God who is incomparable, who can be trusted. And we're going to see three things. We're going to see, first of all, that God does the impossible. Secondly, that God has done the impossible. And thirdly, be quiet, which is not an instruction for you, but, um, well, not quiet, anyway. We'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, God does the impossible, or rather, God does the seemingly uh, impossible. Now, um, I don't know if any of us are fans of kind of military games. Anyone play military games? This was the big game when I was younger. Anyone heard of this? You think I'm so old, don't you? If you go to museums, you'll see that uh, in the section uh, on computer games, this is the game. It's called Command and Conquer. And uh, if you show the next slide, I mean, check out these graphics. Amazing. Uh, you, the idea was you build a kind of empire and you would defend it. And um, it was kind of nerdy people who played it. Uh, but... Um, do they have games like this now? Yeah, okay. You, you, know quite, you know what I'm talking about. But you don't need to be an expert on command and conquer to know that this seems a very questionable kind of military strategy. See, not only does God tell them to do a U-turn towards the place they've just left, but he tells them to encamp in front of the sea. Now, the sea isn't good news if you're kind of doing a military campaign. I've got the sea here. Yes, it is some sea. Thank you, Hannah, for doing this. And the sea is a big no-entry sign, effectively. So they're here, and they're facing the sea. And on the other side come the Egyptians. Now, I know this isn't very scary, but pretend it is. And I wonder if someone can kind of hold that at two meters. That'd be great. You've got gloves on. Terrific. So the Egyptians are here. Uh, sorry, the Israelites are here. The Egyptians are there. And the people look completely trapped. See one side their enemies, the other. Now, when we hear of chariots, we kind of um, perhaps uh, uh, don't quite, um, they're not kind of around today, but chariots were like the, the most advanced weapon of their time. Uh, this is a bit of a kind of old reference, but if you're into kind of World War II history, uh, the Panzer tank kind of completely took the Allies by surprise, went through the Arden Forest, completely trounced the enemy, uh, the, uh, the, the opposition, and uh, it's a bit like the kind of uh, the tank of their day. And they have these uh, chariots uh, charging towards them and the sea on the other side. Now, what do the people do? Well, look at chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And look what they did. They feared greatly. And all the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Notice what they do. They fear and they cry. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems a bit of a surprise, doesn't it? Because what we've seen so far in Exodus, remember we saw the, the nine plagues where God showed his power. And then we saw the Passover plague where God rescued his people. But here's the thing. When they see something that looks impossible like this, they don't trust God. Now, it's easy to point the finger, isn't it? But so often in our lives, we find it very difficult to trust God, don't we? God tells us that we're forgiven. 
And uh, it's not that we don't believe that, but so often it doesn't feel like that. Perhaps we look at our whole lives, and some of us are very young, and we've got a a long life to live, we hope, and we think, how am I going to keep going with Jesus through the decades? Or perhaps we think about the future and the day we do get to die and the judgment we might face, and we think, am I really going to be safe from that? See, actually, the people's response here is so often a response we have ourselves. But God shows them that they need not worry about those things. Uh, Look at his response uh, in verse 16. God says to Moses, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. Uh, Look over the page to verse 21, see what happens. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters divided. So Zoe, my Egyptian, she's put a sword down, uh, is coming at uh, the Israelites, but God tells Moses to stretch out his staff. The sea divides. You like this? There we go. There we go. No expense spared. And the people are able to pass through safely. Now, a lot of people look at this and think to themselves, that just sounds a little bit uh, like make-believe. It sounds a bit like a myth. Um, in fact, there's a whole kind of um, school of thought which uh, basically says this wasn't a kind of miracle. Basically, it was a very windy day, and um, the sea was quite shallow, and the kind of wind blew across it and uh, made a way through for the Israelites. I thought we'd put that to the test by making our own Red Sea and see if that is actually possible. So here we go. Table, Red Sea. I haven't actually tried this. It'd be really embarrassing if it does work. So, um, we can't blow because of COVID. So, got the next best thing. What do you reckon? Is this going to work? No. Okay, we'll try it one. We've got a bit of build up. No, let's put it up. Second one. We've got a bit of movement. Is it dividing, Zoe? Should we go three? What do you reckon? It's shaking a little bit, isn't it? But we've got a way to go, haven't we? Yeah, so it's pretty... <laughs> where have I, where have I done my notes? Um, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty impossible to do that. Uh, and even if that did kind of happen, um, how the Egyptians were drowned in that sort of level of water, I don't know. But um, the point is... It is kind of impossible, but not impossible for God. See, look at um, how it's described uh, again. And um, he says to Moses, divide the water, and dry land appears. Now, if you know Genesis, um, here's a bit from Genesis 1, you'll see that actually this should be very familiar. And God said, let the waters, let's uh, have that Genesis slide up, And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together. He called the sea. So right at the beginning, God divided the waters to make dry land. And here it is, kind of God doing it again as he divides the waters. See, the point is that God 
isn't just some sort of uh, bigger version of ourselves. He is the creator of the universe. And when that creator puts his name on his people and says he's going to rescue them, well, nothing is impossible for him. See, a lot of us fear, don't we, what it might be like uh, to go through the years ahead and whether we're going to stuff things up or whether uh, Jesus is enough to get us through death and judgment. But here we're seeing that God is with us. And if he is with us, well, then we need not fear anything. Jesus says this in John chapter 10, if we could put that up. I'll come back to the tightrope in a minute. John chapter 10. I give them, this is what he says about his people, eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, Jesus says, he doesn't just save us to kind of get on with it ourselves. No one, he says, will snatch them out of our hand. But how do we know that about us? I mean, we might say that's very good for these guys. They get to walk through the sea. It's quite a really visual for them. But we're not. We're here in Basingstoke. Uh, We haven't seen this sort of thing. I mean, we tried it, but it didn't really work. But secondly, we see that God has already done the seemingly impossible. Now, has anyone heard of the concept of an earworm? Yeah? Anyone tell me what it is? Yeah, a song stuck in your head. Um, This is my earworm of last year. Yes, my kids absolutely love it. I'm not going to remind them of it. Um, we've just got this Alexa thing and it kind of plays it over and over again and uh, I don't want to even think about it to be honest but uh, the the point is an earworm is something that gets in your head and you play it over and over again and chapter 15 is a bit like that but not a baby shark annoying version but a joyous version see chapter 15 is a song about what's just happened have a look at um, the first couple of verses then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. See, this would be number one on the Spotify charts after this event has happened. And what's it about? Well, it's about the fact that God can save nothing no enemy can trouble his people. How do they know that? Well, look at what they look back to. Verse 15, verse 1 says, he's thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. See, as the Israelites look back on the bodies of the Egyptians, and ask me about this afterwards if you, if you like, they realize that their enemies have been finally defeated, that they need not fear the whip on their back or the oppression of the work camp no more. Now, what does this mean for us? Does this mean we can kind of pray that our enemies will be chucked in the water, that, um, you know, someone at college is annoying us, and uh, we pray and they kind of fall into a river on their way into college? Is that the kind of idea here? Well, no, just in case any of you were wondering. Uh, it, It doesn't mean that, but it does point to another time that God has dealt with our enemies See, the sea in kind of the ancient world was a bit of a nightmare place because it symbolized kind of chaos and emptiness and lostness. I guess the equivalent for us is like being lost in space. It terrifies us to to even think about it. And the sea became a kind of symbol of judgment 
Uh, remember when Noah uh, was saved, uh, he was saved from the judgment on the earth. How did that happen? Well, it was through water. And here we see Egypt judged again through water. And when we get to Jesus, we see Jesus talk about water again. He says something a bit strange in Mark chapter 10, but it begins to make sense when we look at this. Jesus said to his disciples, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? Now, Jesus isn't talking about a cup. He's not terrified about a cup. He's not talking about baptism as we kind of imagine um, at the front here, but he's talking about something greater. He's talking about the cross and the judgment he will face. See, he says that the cross is a baptism. He's going to be covered in water, not literal water, not water like this, but the waters of God's judgment. See, just like the waters rushed in on the Egyptians, so too the judgment of God will pour out on him. But unlike the Egyptians, Jesus did not deserve. He was the one who deserved to go through safely. But by him taking the waters of judgment on himself, you and me can walk through safely. See, there's all sorts of worries, aren't there, as we look ahead uh, in our lives. Will God keep me? Will I stuff up some massive way and kind of lose my way? Will um, will God get me through death? Any challenge? Well, this point, this reminds us that God already has. See, in Jesus, our judgment's already taken. And in Jesus, God is already for us. So the Israelites looked back to the bodies on the shore, and we look back, not to the Egyptian bodies, but to the body of our Savior on the cross. Now, thirdly, and very shortly, Uh, Moses says to the people when they're grumbling, when they're worried, he says to them, essentially, be quiet. Now, that doesn't mean keep stum. It doesn't mean be passive and sit back. But it does mean we can trust God. It means that whatever we face, we need not worry about God's ability to get us through it. And my question for us this evening is, do we know that about God? We may know that God has saved us in Jesus And absolutely, he has. But as we look forward in our lives, do we know that God is with us and for us and will keep us to the end? And for those of us who wouldn't call ourselves a Christian, that same truth is for us. By trusting Jesus for ourselves, Jesus promises to keep us safe from the many terrors, from the many enemies of death and sin to come. So we've seen God works through what seems impossible. He has worked through what seems impossible. And all we need to do is to be quiet, to trust him. Let's pray as we finish. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your salvation. Thank you, Father, that you showed your people that nothing uh, could jeopardize your plans and purposes. And we pray as a group, Father, that you would help us to trust you Uh, in all things, but also help us to help one another to trust you. We thank you for what we've seen. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So, um, great to see that we've had a couple of questions come in. There's still time to text in just while we're speaking now, so if there there are any burning issues that you feel we haven't addressed, then um, there's still time for that. 
Um, but I think we'll just get straight, straight to it, Rob, if that's okay. So the first question is, was Moses guilty of mass murder or sort of genocide um, when he stretched out his hand to cause the sea to close over the Egyptians? Great, but so not easy. Uh, <laughs> thank you for the question. But it is a fair question because I guess lots of us read that and think, why did they have to kind of bring judgment on them? A uh, couple of things to say. Earlier on in Exodus, you may remember that uh, God gave uh, Pharaoh a very clear warning. Uh, he said, uh, chapter 4, verse 22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse, behold, I will call your firstborn son. Um, so it's not that kind of um, this was a big surprise for them. Uh, God, uh, I know this is about the Passover, we'll get to that in a moment. But God um, basically said, uh, it's, it's a bit like a kind of kidnapping. You've stolen my son and I'm going to get him back. But before I do that, I'm going to give you lots and lots of warnings uh, about letting him go. Um, you'll remember back in chapter 1 as well that Israel, uh, Egypt were casting the babies of Israelites into the Nile. Uh, so this is not kind of, you know, just someone doing a couple of wrong things. This is uh, years and decades of effectively work and labor camps uh, uh, persecuting these people and um, that's not to kind of give us the whole answer, but by the time we get to the end, God has given them so many warnings. And yet, at the end, uh, the Egyptians still pursue them. And when God brings the waters on them, it's like uh, justice is done in the sense of they killed the Israelites, and now uh, life is brought on them. Uh, life, their lives are brought to an end. Um, just to say, though, because I guess that makes, still makes us uncomfortable, it's not that kind of Christians uh, can do that now. As I say, you can't pray that someone will fall in a lake or something like that. Um, this was a kind of one-off picture of God's judgment. And as I said at the end of my talk, it's a picture to help us appreciate actually what Jesus has done for us. So just as the Egyptians faced death, our um, enemies like sin and death, our spiritual enemies, are dealt with once and for all. So big question. I hope that helps set some of that up. Thank you, Rob. Um, So the next question is kind of about about God's power and demonstration of his power. So it says, if God is so powerful, why did he have to murder all the Egyptian soldiers um, just so his people would fear him? Um, His people have already witnessed all the plagues, so why does he need to sort of do another show of power, particularly one that's quite, quite destructive? Yeah, so I think for the reasons I just said to that, thanks for the question, by the way, the reasons, the answer I gave to that first question, I think, shows us to use the word murder isn't quite right, uh, because God isn't doing that to the people. He's taking back their lives, and after all, God gives life, and uh, he gives life in his creation, and now he's taken it back. So like he did with Noah, he took life back uh, from the world, and now he's doing it uh, with Egypt. Um, So it's not kind of like us doing it. It's different. Uh, for God. Um, the second part, though, you said... Oh, sorry, remind me again. Is it about... um, sorry, so the second part is his people had already witnessed oh, the yes. plagues. Um, so why this additional... Yeah, it's a good question. And, and it's kind of what my talk was about because you think by now the people would have got it. I mean, they saw these massive plagues. They saw uh, God rescue them through the Lamb. And you think now that's it. But actually, it takes a long time for the penny to drop 
that they really have the creator of the universe with them. Um, so I think the answer is that actually we find it very, 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 very difficult to believe God is really as powerful as he tells us, and he's really as good as he tells us. And so I think this um, shows it is a final kind of uh, show to show, oh, sorry, mix it, repeat my words, a final show um, to demonstrate that God really is powerful to his people. And as I said at the end of my talk, it's not that we kind of look back at the Egyptians, but we look back to the cross and think, there God has shown his power uh, and uh, forgiven us through Jesus. Cool. Thanks, Rob. Um, had a, a few more come through. Oh, so, um, why did God need or ask Moses to use the staff to move the water? Why, why was that? Why did he do that? Oh, that is a conundrum. Yeah, I'm still not quite sure on this. I think what God is doing... Um, and uh, others can disagree with me on this, but this is kind of a new thing I've seen. I think God is kind of setting up Moses as a, a kind of Jesus figure. So um, right now, you can see my shadow on the back of this board. On the back of that board. Um, yeah, you can see that shadow. Yeah, you can see the beard coming through. Um, so the Bible kind of works like this, that actually... Um, we don't just get Jesus arrive out of nowhere, and he's a real surprise. Actually, we get lots of these shadows uh, throughout the Bible. And one of the things I think Exodus is doing is giving us the kind of outline, the shadow of Jesus uh, in Moses. Because Moses, even though he's human, uh, God says, you'll be like God to Pharaoh. He's kind of um, jumping a category. He's, he, he's kind of God's powers in him. Now, that doesn't mean Moses is divine or anything, but it does help us to see that God actually is able to work through a human being. And uh, when we see Jesus uh, come, he is both completely human and both completely God, and he acts in a greater way than Moses acts here. Uh, the staff, I've, that's a really long answer to a short question. Uh, the staff, um, yeah, I've got no idea. <laughs> I'm still thinking, to be honest. Yeah. Why staff particularly? Um, ask Caroline. She's, <laughs> she's done more work on that. That's great. Uh, just uh, a couple of, sort of slightly lighter comments to end on. So someone says, thanks. Now I have baby shark stuck in my head. Sorry. Um, and finally, beard is looking good. Have you heard of beard oil? It'll help with the itchy pose. Really? Just a top tip for you. Yeah, if you could let me know what brands to get, that would be great. <laughs> Glad to know we're taking this so seriously. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you.